0: Hello, Casey. So once again, we are back having another conversation that has been on our list for quite some time. We I are. Gotcha. Like
1: True. Um, we do have such a long list. So you know, I was thinking about the podcast. and it's some like some some goals, some vision for what we might be, what I'm hoping that we create. So follow me here. I want to see what you think about this. Of course. So you know how. Sometimes people have to have an experience of something themselves to be to understand something or to be an advocate or to be a, some kind of ally or even to just believe something exists, you mm. know, like COVID. Like some people not believing COVID exists, then they get COVID and now they understand that it's real.
0: You don't believe it. Or
1: someone they know. Right. And I think that's true for a lot of things. I think that's true for, um, you know, certainly I've experienced that around transness. It's like, I'm, if I'm the first person someone's meeting, all of a sudden my like, people see like, oh, wow, look at all these ways that the world is set up. that It's hard for trans people. Like, hmm, I didn't know that until I met you. So here's what I'm thinking. What my hope is with the podcast is that people get to know us and they listen in on these conversations. And even if the, the, the podcast gets to do that, right? Like the podcast is the friend or, you know, the experience that they have that has them see the world differently and, and make some kind of change.
0: Yes. It's also exposure, which I think right. we're doing at here, providing folks that maybe in their own ordinary lives do not get the chance to, you know, interact with folks from different cultures, different backgrounds, True. different experiences from them. So hopefully we are providing a place where people can hear firsthand accounts of what is it like to have a certain experience in today's society and also in higher ed?
1: Yes, absolutely. Okay, loving it, great. So that's what we're, that's what really, I think that's what we're about. And for some reason, I hadn't actually thought about it in those terms until this morning. But um, here for this conversation today, we're talking about disability today. We're talking about access. Um, Well, we're talking about lots of things. We have two amazing guests with us, artists, both of them, poets, we're gonna hear some poetry from them. We have Aura Fortier, who is a poet, a lyricist, a singer. She's here in Milford, Connecticut. And we have Sarah Rizzuto, who is an MFA. Um, She got her MFA at at Southern and uh, has taught, does teach disability studies, poetry, creative writing, and she's an advocate. so both of them are here with us today for this conversation. Welcome, thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. So exciting, I've been dying all week to have this conversation and welcome you two back. So this will is really exciting for me personally. Thank you, thank you,
2: appreciate
0: it.
1: So one thing that I, you know, a place that I think we should start this conversation is that a lot of times when it comes to disability, there are disabilities that are quite visible uh, to people in the world. And then there are those that are not visible. Um, and there tends to be sort of a stereotype about what disability, I'm, I'm using it like a singular, but of course that we're, we're talking about a huge range of things when we use that one word, um, but they're not all visible. And the way that we talk about disability in society is, you know, I think we can do a better job.
2: Yeah, I think um, the world is kind of caught up in a little bit in a binary of just dis- versus non disabled. Um, right. And the default assumption, weird as it sounds, is to, or, or at least maybe to us, at least it sounds weird, is that the default assumption is that you're not disabled until you make it known you're disabled. And mm-hmm. then when, then, depending on the person, disabled might mean all these things you're not saying you know disabled might they expect a a certain level of incapability to do these things and meanwhile you might be somewhere more in the middle or somewhere or, or have, have a more something that affects you in a more minor way or something like that and and then they don't uh then 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 you got to try to prove the validity of your disability and it's it's a whole it's a whole thing um and and to kind of have it, it's not exactly the same as as being in the lgbt community like at all but like it's similar in the sense that once you out the fact that you have a disability, then there's a bunch of whole stereotypes and expectations and perceived biasness and all these things that come out. So you got to decide sometimes, is this someone I want knowing I'm disabled? And, you know, it's it's it can be a lot for sure.
3: And in my case, I don't really have, you know, I, I don't get to decide is, is this someone I want knowing I'm disabled because... I use a power wheelchair and as soon as you meet me, it's as, you know, it's as apparent as the color of my skin, which is I'm dark skinned and I was adopted from India. So those two things are equally obvious. And, Mm. um, but even though those two things are equally obvious, the first thing that um, perhaps a stranger would comment on is my wheelchair. And Mm. often um, people approach me and ask me questions that, you wouldn't normally ask someone that you don't know. So then you have to decide for yourself, You know, are you gonna share information with them? Who do you share information with? And how do you approach a subject if it's just a momentary interaction?
0: I would never be surprised at the comfortability and audacity of strangers. <laughs> And I I can see the connections to being queer and being disabled but folks that feel so comfortable coming up to people they just met, barely know, never had a conversation with, and will ask a deeply personal, borderline, maybe even offensive question about their way of life, about their quality of life, that you wouldn't even ask maybe your own siblings or parents at home. So I I would never be surprised at the audacity. And I think the conversation about invisibility and visible disabilities is a good conversation to have because often folks may not even believe someone with an invisible disability even has such. Mm -hmm. And this notion of having to prove that you need accessibility, that you need resources um, seems to be also a notion.
1: And I I think the interesting thing too is uh, and aura you mentioned this right at the beginning about the assumption is that and I think built in there the assumption is that people are not disabled mm-hmm. until you find out that they are so the sort of the norm like a, a normal person in quotation marks is is doesn't have a disability unless unless you see that they do. And the same, I mean I think the parallel there with queerness is certainly the case that people are assumed to be Heterosexual until they come out.
3: In my case, there's kind of the assumption that only older, only older people have disabilities. Mm. I was um, born with my disability; it's not something that I acquired. When when strangers do approach me, one of the questions they often ask is, "What happened to you? Did you have a car accident?" Like that's the stereotype that people have in their minds. Mm. Many people do have car accidents that lead to disability, but In my case, I was born with it. And I hire my own people to work for me and help me with my everyday life and in my work life as well. And people that I've met aren't used to someone as young as myself, who's almost 40, you know, hiring their own people and needing someone. They're used to only elderly people uh, needing assistance.
2: I think it's also important to kind of almost add that... um, neurodivergence is way more common um than it's per- than uh, a lot of people would think it is like and I, and I have this fear that like people are masking or pretending they don't have neurodivergence because it'll change the way they're viewed and in a society in which we just uh, said uh, that it's cool to be whatever, or to have whatever difficulties you have or whatever. Um, in that society, people's needs would get met and everyone would feel welcome. But if you have to pretend to be something you want to get a, to something else than what you are in order to get the results you want, I feel like there's always going to be a bit of a resentment in the back of people's minds that's going to make them feel uh, hurt and unheard. Um, and just make it difficult to be the kind of person they want to be. Um, and uh, I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but it's like that's important that people don't don't that someday people feel like they can talk about their experiences and they can, and they are valid. and there's nothing wrong with having these difficulties or differences or struggles um, that it is normal because what is normal and so that they can get what they need and be the best person they can possibly be.
3: I used to tell the students in my disability studies class, you know, I'm disabled now, and I've always been since birth, like I just mentioned, but one day, if you're lucky, you will be too, because it means that you've lived long enough that your body will start changing and not functioning as it used to. And so if you're lucky, you will acquire some form of disability and and need help. And in a society that values independence, over Mm -hmm. interdependence, it's a really big deal for people to need help in ways that they view it are only for, you know, babies or the elderly. So to be in between is often a difficult place to be. And even when people grow older, it's difficult to ask for help because we live in a culture that doesn't value asking for help, even though all of us do it every day at a store, at a restaurant, we just don't see that as basic. We see that as that's to be expected. Of course, we'll ask our, our waiters to help us or uh, you know someone that works in retail to help us but we won't ask someone to help us use the bathroom for example
2: mm. yeah yeah it, it's uh it's also kind of debilitating in a social way because you take uh the assumption that everyone can do a bunch of things like driving for example means that we don't have transit systems that are accommodating to people who have any level of disability. And I, and I don't mean just from a maybe not having the wheelchairs properly, that which which is its own, which could be its own challenge, no doubt, trying to get on a, you know, a bus or whatever with, with wheelchairs and lack of accessibility or whatever. But even from the perspective of like, the, you know, the buses in Milford take a, uh, they're only run for like, I don't know, like 12 hours. And then there's like a three hour lunch break somewhere in the middle. So mm-hmm. it's like, and you know, the bus routes are only going to go, you know, certain places. So it's like unless your plan any plan you could possibly have fits exactly all the things you need it to fit, it the thing doesn't happen. The thing you wanted to go to, the event you wanted to go to, the thing you want to be part of, uh, you know you just you just come to the realization that oh, I guess I'll have to stay home instead you know and and, uh, and, and for people who don't have disabilities that can drive and bring themselves wherever it's not uh, probably something they think about a ton but it's definitely something that impacts your life when you are disabled in a a significant way. If you don't drive, that is, of course, obviously.
3: I don't drive, but I have my own car. So I, the people that work for me also have to drive it. And there's, you know, a lot of coordinating and juggling in that because not all the people that work for me drive and that's different. But also before I drove, I also had to take um, either paratransit or buses and like, or I said, that's very difficult to arrange. There's gaps in schedules. Mm-hmm. If I live you know, too far off the route, they're not coming to pick me up. That's why I, I somewhat chose to live close to New Haven because we have city buses and accessible taxis. But even so, um, the car that I have, I had to get through the state and that's $50,000. So a lot of things that people with disabilities need, whether it's you know, a learning disability or physical disability, they're out of our price range. Not mm-hmm. many people I know own a $50,000 vehicle. And the reason that it's that much is because it has to be modified because even though I don't drive it, I sit inside it. So, you know, yeah. the cost of things is difficult.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there's so many good good points that, that you both have made and certainly, and disability is an interesting category to think about because like you said Sarah some people are born quote unquote born this way and then other people move into and sometimes out of and back into um various forms of of disability as we age as we exist in the world um so you know unlike except now I'm like complicating things in my mind because like well we can transition genders but like You know the race that you're born—that's not going to change. The context around it might change.
3: People see me; they see my skin color and my disability. But the first one I always get asked about is my disability. And you know, in these times, you would think that it might be my skin color on some day, but it's never been that.
1: I just—I still think it's wild that Jamil is, is cynical, so he's not surprised. But, I mean, for people to come up to you and and say basically some form of what happened to you, I mean, that, I believe it, and also it's it's shocking to me.
0: Something I think about, um, often, even in DEI spaces, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion kind of spaces and groups, we don't talk about disabilities often, Um, I have noticed. You know, a lot of people are not having these Mm -hmm. conversations and are thinking about accommodations, um, what the other person may be experiencing, how to make maybe the client or your student or X, Y and Z feel more comfortable in the space. We're not having these conversations. And I wonder how COVID has changed that. You know, Mm -hmm. so many folks will say that COVID may be a mass disabling event right? Like there were so many people who now needed the support of breathing machines to breathe in hospitals Mm. where that was not happening previous. So our nation and our world as a whole felt that change. Our lives changed drastically. And so I wonder, will that leave a lasting impact on how we view um, folks that have disabilities and how we approach um, helping and assisting?
2: Uh, That thing has kind of been... First of all, it, it's important to mention that in some ways, uh, even uh, it wasn't, it's still not quite equal. Like you think, you know, COVID stops everyone from doing things. Um, it's not quite equal because, in the sense that if you could do less than, if you could do less in the past, uh, it doesn't bring us to even, it brings us closer to even. But it's still, when your one chance to get out of the house was to go to the thing with a few friends, and all of a sudden, you know, only uh, you have to get yourself there because COVID has made it unsafe for people to be in the car together or whatever, then you just don't go to... What I'm saying is it's not totally equal, but it's a lot closer to equal. Um, the
3: just- say, thing that I've heard is um, everybody's 24 hours in the day in one day is not the same 24 hours.
2: Sure, sure. You know, sure. if
3: you use paratransit, if you use transit, if you have PCAs or uh-huh. aids, as I said, caregivers that only come in at certain times, like the way that I use my time and the way that Oura is talking about, the way that you do things really depends on how, how much you're able to do in a given day. And not everybody's is the same. And that depends on a lot of different yeah. factors.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and the one, the one thing that it really, one thing has shown dramatically to change though is how much more accessible we can make the world how much more how much more stuff we could put on a zoom call that would normally require me to take you know uh you know an hour or two both ways to to go you know only you know 15 20 minutes by car or whatever um instead we can make it a zoom call and have that be that um you know uh even so much from the position of like work and stuff you know even even affecting non-disabled people to be honest like to take away some of these commutes and some of these extra things that were never needed in the first place um has been eye opening and 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 positive and and you know and seeing you know how nice it is to have something a little more socialist flavored to get a little um get a little cash get a little you know the stimulus checks to get a little money to extra money to help people and all these things to see all the differences and positive changes this can make and then to see the entire world go but we're still a capitalist country and you need to justify the value of your existence you need to have puritanical work values you need to be so morally uprighteous as to fit a certain expectation of the kind of person you're supposed to be in order to get help. You have to prove consistently prove you are worthy of any kind of help. And, uh, and unfortunately, any positive changes we can make will be damned when we still think of people in that framework. When we go, when we change to the mindset of everyone deserves a certain level of help if they need it so that we can all function, um, you know, that'll be a huge positive change to make a world difference. But until we adopt that mindset, These changes always feel temporary. It feels like when just thing changes a little bit, um, you know, we're gonna go back to where we were, even if we saw all the positive differences it can make.
3: I agree with her because a lot of people are surprised to learn that, you know, I I don't just get my wheelchair. I'm not just granted my wheelchair or my walk or, or my shower chair. You know, like I have to advocate for it and ask for it and have it in writing of why I need it and it has to be processed and you know revisited every couple of years so all this equipment that I've been using all my life and that I definitely need and couldn't function without um there's always a worry in the back of my mind about you know will I qualify for another wheelchair what if my, like I've had a walker now that I've had since sixth grade and I've been working been looking for three years to get a new walker and I, I can't find a similar one so even the basic things that I need, I you know, equipment that people think I just receive because it's obvious that I have a disability is not the case. Because like I said, you have to constantly prove why you need it and that you're worthy of having something.
1: Yeah, that believability piece, I mean, especially in, in your case, Sarah, I mean you're you're proving something that has always been true. Um, needs that you that you have so it's not so to have to like continuously sort of make a case for and advocate for and you know you're a highly educated highly capable highly skilled person and i just think about how just how many folks um don't have that and and, and don't have resources to be able to advocate for what they need a um, and sometimes it's just time
3: and energy. it's difficult to navigate systems like it can get very tiring. It's hard to be persistent, you know, so
1: mm-hmm.
3: not everybody has that ability. And I understand why they don't have the time or energy. But
2: it's oh, sorry, um, it's a double edged sword. Um, the, the situation because like, okay, let me let me give you an example. So I'm sure you guys have heard by now that the whole the whole idea of you know it's good uh you know get unemployment or get disability or whatever as long as you need then then do the things to get yourself so you no longer need it take it for, mm-hmm. for the time you need it and then you know get off of it so you know so that other people can get it or whatever so that because you know you, you once once you have savings and you can put it aside you can basically it's people who don't want you to forever be on disability or whatever right. Um, 'll they'll, they'll say that hundred percent but then they'll set a two thousand dollar limit on all your savings. so let's let's say let's say let's say I mean I don't really have enough money to really invest in Wall Street, but let's just say i I was so good at budgeting, which would be a miracle by the way because you know you have to pay for like food and shit and stuff so you know it's not really it's not really realistic. but let's just say I was able to put aside a decent amount of money each month and was able to start investing in stocks and be able to put you know a savings aside and all that. I would very quickly be over 2000 and then I would no longer receive any money. So I wouldn't have a chance to ever build those savings, So I could eventually be independent. They set, they set up a system where they lambast you and criticize you and get upset by you because you're dependent on them. But then they create the system in such a way where you can never not be dependent on it. Because if you can't have more than $2,000 savings, I mean, come on, come on. Is anyone going to retire on less than $2,000 of savings?
3: When I'm not working, that's the same limit that I'm under. And that's why I mentioned my expensive car, for example. The reason that I can't, even if I had $50,000, which I don't think I ever will. I mean, someone just won the Powerball in Cheshire, which is where I used to live. So it's possible. But in general, (laughs) you know, I don't have the means through the ways the system is set up to achieve, you know, economic stability, financial stability even though I'm always asked, you know, when I'm evaluated for receiving help from my aides, I'm always asked, what are your goals? And what I say is, my goal is to stay in the community, but what I wish I could say is, you know, my goal is to buy my own car. My goal is to publish a book. My goal is to do these things that you don't even see possible that's not in your paperwork, you know? Because like Aura said, there's such a low standard set
2: and I'm really fricking lucky because my parents helped me in a million ways. They help pay for my uh, phone. They help pay for my cable. They do all these, these wonderful things to, uh, to help me uh, out and make sure that I have, I'm living a quality of life that would be decently somewhat above, you know, my what my income would be, you would think. Um, so it's like, uh, it's, you know, it's like, on one hand, you know, I'm, I'm truly, truly grateful for all that. Um, and it's, 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 it's wonderful that I'm lucky, but then that, but also there's not, not everyone has a family that's doing decently enough to help them out and all these other things. If I didn't have, uh, the support and help my family, if I didn't have my mom bringing me shopping once a week and doing all these, these things, um, it would being disabled in today's world would be really rough it's it's not it's not easy as it currently is but it would be really freaking rough if uh if my you know my parents weren't like i said helping me with my cable bill and things of that nature and, and and making sure i have internet and all these other things um so it's 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 frustrating to think to to imagine for a second you know to to relate to other people to imagine someone who doesn't have the support i have
3: that's where the advocacy comes in but so and, and we we both advocate but also like sometimes i feel like even though i always want to help everybody else like like many of us do that sometimes i only have the energy to advocate for myself because
0: mm-hmm. because
3: and, and that itself helps other people but by example i hope but you know even among people with disabilities like we said at the beginning there's such a wide range of disabilities and different needs that to know exactly what someone's situation is and help them figure out how to navigate it is really difficult to find someone in exactly the same situation that you could talk to and relate to and be like, how do I deal with this specific issue? Like, it's nice to know that others can relate to you, but it's different to find someone that can actually help you navigate different barriers that you face.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think it brings us to a really good point of this conversation where we talk about, you know, how hard it is to be not only your own advocate, but for advocating for other people in your own community. But what can folks that are not part of that community do to uplift and also advocate on your behalf, Mm -hmm. even in small or large ways? Um, So I think about often, you know, in the space of higher education, how can folks, faculty, for instance, make classrooms more accessible? How can folks that work in facilities ensure that buildings are accessible? How can, Deans, make sure students are getting the resources they deserve and need to thrive at a university or college. Um, So I think about admin, for instance, how can they give out funding to ensure that certain pockets of students' needs are being met? And how can they facilitate that for the rest of their staffs to follow? The trainings we receive, you know, how are student peer experiences? What are the training they're receiving around disabilities?
1: I think that, you know, I mean, we're at a public university um, in any public institution, any institution period. I mean, I think should have uh, a responsibility to welcome the whole community. And we know that, you know, institutions of higher ed are historically exclusive. Um, And I mean, I think sort of fundamentally, a lot of people are excluded Period. I mean, Sarah, you were mentioning people are always surprised to find out like, oh, you're a professor. Yes. Yeah,
3: when I was first starting off, like trying to go through school, I needed help from the state to help me hire people. When I was 19, I suddenly got thrust into like, OK, you have to hire people to help you through school. You know, and that was totally new. But they said, um, what is your dream job? And I said either teach at art school or to become a university professor and they said well you can't do that and I said well we didn't say this was reality we said you asked me what my dream job was Mm -hmm. and they said well you could accomplish enough with just a bachelor's and so
0: they weren't going
3: to let me go forward because you know they're looking to what makes me employable and I'm glad to be employable there's people that can't work at all but you know, that low, again, that low standard, so, Um, first and foremost, you have to have higher standards and communicate with the different people that are disabled and ask them what their needs are and just be open and receptive.
1: You know, like being told what you can't do, you're not capable of doing that, or this this thing is enough for you to just, yeah, I mean that the system itself in that way is disabling,
2: right? There's a constant infuriating dissonance uh, between the message we are all given when we were younger, which is go, go, you know, go achieve your dreams. You live in the land of possibility. Anything can happen. And then you start to, especially in the case of being disabled, even to a degree, being a person in general, I won't, I won't deny it happens to everybody to, to a different degree, but I think it's almost like a different level when you're disabled. It's like, okay, what if you want to become a baseball player? Well, you know, if you're physically disabled, if you're physically disabled, even to a small degree, you probably aren't going to become the super athlete necessary to become successful in baseball or, or sport or whatever sport you can imagine. Um, and if you're if you're if you've got a super visible, like obvious disability, then, yeah, it's going to be basically a miracle at that point, unfortunately. Um, and this is not a knock on the passion or the work ethic of the people of people but it's just there's a certain level of athleticism when you're going to top level sports that if you're not if you're starting from a certain level of challenge the the odds of you actually making it to where you would need to be are very unlikely and well you know you could go okay obviously you know then don't you know become a sports player and, and fair enough but everything to 1 degree or another um presents itself with a level of challenge that in some way compounds upon itself um if you have disability or if you have something that makes it harder um you know even so much as um i'm trying to do music right this is a good example i'm trying to do music and uh when i when i when when it comes down to it when getting together with friends to work on music or whatever when i can never bring myself to where we need to be when i need someone to pick me up or drive you know that adds extra maybe half hour both ways and all of a sudden uh, something that would have been really feasible if I could drive myself there um, becomes a lot less feasible and uh, I think that happens to but but even even to go away from that I think it happens to a degree to everybody everyone gets told achieve your dreams when it's when it's a nice little message in a tv show or whatever but when it actually becomes you actually actively pursuing it your dreams in order to get the support and kindness and and help you need along your way, your support has to fit the expectations of dreams you should be going for by someone's standard. You know, if you want your parents' help, you got to go for a dream that your parents will support. And in some cases they'll support anything. And in some cases they won't. Some, some forces they'll say, Hey, you want to achieve that particular dream. I think you should be going to become a doctor or a lawyer. And if you don't go for that, then I I don't really want to help you. Or, uh, you know, if, if it's the state or, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, people with disabilities should have these expectations to go for these goals, but not these. And uh, I guess what I'm saying is is it's harsh when you get told your whole life and fed your whole life that you should go for the dream. And then when you actually try to achieve whatever that dream of yours is and you are getting told that you're, it's not a dream that we feel is worthy of supporting, that's, a, that's tough. And that's tough for everybody, not just disability, but especially disability.
0: I think it's even a larger conversation because it reminds me of the lift yourself up by your own bootstraps Amen. Argument yes. that you hear often. And that argument has been used on numerous marginalized communities that somehow you should be able to lift yourself out of your own situation and climb the social ladder. Independently, when we- Independently um, even while society is actively oppressing your community so disregard the oppression that society is placing on your community and instead reach towards social mobility, which we know statistically is just a difficult thing to achieve in this nation, especially compared to other nations that are around the same playing field as us. So I think often it's not even about reaching for your dreams, it's about having your basic needs met. Mm-hmm. So yeah. many people are just trying to have their basic needs. They don't wanna be an NFL player or Or the next huge American Idol singer, they just want to have a safe place to sleep, food to eat, have their medication paid for. They just want basic needs. And even those things can be hard to attain when active oppression is happening. Even if those around them do not even necessarily acknowledge that oppression is happening.
2: The whole notion of pick yourself up by your bootstraps is fucking bullshit. The, the mere idea of it is total bullshit. And what I mean by that is that uh, we as humans function as a species, a social species that helps each other, that works together, every single thing we fucking do. If you have streets, that's because someone who was not you most likely probably paved them. I mean, they're, they're statistically, I'm sure it's possible you were one of the people working on it, but most likely, you know, statistically, there's only a small, portion of people. If you have anything on this planet that exists, it's because we all decide to help each other and accomplish things. And and even these people who are, who say, you know, the people who are the biggest proponents are people who, they have their emotion, they're trying to get their emotional needs met. You know, they're having lives, they, they, they have friends, they have, uh, you know, they have, oftentimes they have resources that maybe some of us don't. They have all these things that only exist because we live in a society of, of things that exist and, and 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 um and 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 social exist social presence, uh, social availability that uh, makes it possible. I mean, okay, let's let's say let's say these these people let's say someone one of these people who loves this bootstrap mentality. What happens if their house gets broken into? Do they call? Do they, do they take care of it themselves personally? Because they, you know, they're all about independence and believing in themselves, and I can do it all on my own. Or do they call the police? They call the police. <laughs> we, we all, you know, um, you know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I have it's trouble like, putting. It.
3: it goes back to my point about interdependence and how society society generally <laughs> believes in that you could do everything by yourself. And I admire people that are very independent, I do. I think it's, I met a lot of teachers that I work with that are very independent, take on, you know, lots of classes, do a lot. Um, but me, for example, I'm only because of my disability and my disability check that I receive when I'm not working, I can only teach one class. And people ask me, well, you have like several degrees, why don't you teach more? you know, you're very smart. Why don't, why don't you do more? And they mean it in the best, in a well-intentioned way. And there, there are people that know me well, but then when they learn my circumstance, they understand that I've done the best with what I've got. And that's all that anybody can do. But even doing that is sometimes difficult.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. I, the question of interdependence has been coming up a lot on, on the podcast. Um, the last couple seasons, actually, and often I think about. I'm going to make a relation to to transness. Like a lot of times, people um, conflate transness with hardship. Um, like they're one in the same. Or just think about like all the ways that that is hard. Or like a parent, like a kid comes out to their parent, um, and then the parent just thinks like, "Oh, this is a tragedy for my child's life." Um, everything's gonna be so hard for them and people are gonna treat them badly. And, you know, all of that, all this negative stuff is wrapped up. And um, at some point I started to think about and ask people like, what um, what, is, like, what do we bring? You know, like what do we uniquely uh, as a group of people, like what do we have to offer? What have we learned from our experience that um, is, is not a hardship, that is something that is really valuable Um, to us and to other people that we can share. And I think, you know, in queer communities in general, I think that interdependence is one of those things and caregiving, uh, mutual aid, certainly, um, you know, tenacity is another one, but interdependence, like I think that that point is really an important one, especially in American society that is so caught up on the values of of independence, um, of being a productive worker um, and measuring people's worth in that way. Um, But I'm wondering if, Sarah, maybe you could say a little bit more about interdependence. I mean, I'm thinking about how I was at 19. I certainly uh, was not in the position where I could, I can't even imagine myself being capable of coordinating caregivers at that age. Never mind, I mean, I, can I barely handle that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> when you're th- when you in elementary through high school, you're given someone that already you know you're assigned an older adult that's going to work with you. But when I came to Southern, they told me, "Oh, I have to find my own caregiver," and I was like, "Okay, how do I do that?" Um, and they were like, "And this was two weeks before school," and they told me, "Well, you have to put up flyers," and I'm like, "That's not very helpful." But Southern is one of the most supportive places that I've been in terms of disability, but still even at Southern and even out in the community, it's even harder to, to find people. And not only to find them and get them to interview and all of that kind of responsible stuff, but um, just navigating like, like this is my life and this is yours. And how do we help each other? Like Today, right before this podcast, someone that worked for me for five years said, you know, you're the star of your own life. And she's someone that I know very well and she knows me and I believe her, but like, I can't be the star of my own life if no one comes to get me out of bed. Mm. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So in order to pump myself first, I have to put others first. And that's hard. And it's hard when you're 19 and to be like, okay, I don't want you to go and party and worry about these typical, I mean, that's a stereotype too. Not all college students party, but to balance college life and the social demands and also work for someone who needs help, but is also a college student as I was. So it's like a tricky balance and being a good communicator is super important because people get, people need to understand that even though they may be caring people. This is, at times, it may still be just a job to them because I have a lot of people that come to work for me over the years, and now that have hard days that are having difficulties themselves, especially during this pandemic. And sometimes I feel like I'm kind of like, you know, well, you know, a counselor to them, and I want them to speak to me and tell me about their life so that we can move forward and have a good day and try our best. Or during shift because their shift is actually what makes up my life so to them it may be just a shift at the moment but those shift up those shifts make up my everyday you know routine and what i am trying to accomplish and that's why sometimes i feel like me being a professor as great as that is people see that as the highest accomplishment accomplishment that i can achieve and i know that that's incorrect but sometimes i don't know what more i can achieve if I don't have better help, or the people that working for me don't have better help. Sometimes people say that my aides or my PCAs, personal caregivers, seem more disabled than me or have more disabling circumstances. So this whole notion of independence assumes that everybody's quote unquote stable, but I'm working with people that are from minority groups, I'm working with people that don't have much money, I'm, you know, working with people that face inequalities themselves. And that, mm-hmm. makes it, that makes it a very caring community of people, but also makes it very difficult. And I appreciate both sides of it, but.
0: Something I'm thinking of is, and Casey, you, you had me rolling my mind on it when you were talking about how we view hardship. You know, you come out as trans, people think of hardship. You come out as gay, they think of hardship. You're born with disability, they think of hardship. Like you're black, they think of hardship. All these things, people immediately think life is gonna be hard, you're gonna have all these horrible experiences, X, Y, and Z. When often when you ask folks that hold one or multi of these identities, some of the first things they don't think of is hardship, you know, they don't, uh, most people that are marginalized don't think of hardship as some of the first things that come to mind as an everyday part of their life. And, you know, I was talking about this a couple of days ago You know, it's Black History Month. All the streaming services, they have a category that say Black Voices. You look on Black Voices, all the movies are about enslavement. They're about Jim Crow. They're about hardship. They're about voting rights. They're not about Black romance, Black comedy, Black joy. Um, So I think often when it comes to being a part of a marginalized community, you have other folks writing your story for you you have people in power, people that are not even from your own community, writing stories about your community and what they think that experience is like on an everyday basis. Almost every movie I've seen with a gay character is about that person coming out the closet. And it revolves around coming out the closet as if it's this one huge moment in your life, like a kintsugi, And it's like, boom, <laughs> and it's, it's this huge thing uh, that every character has to go through it on the big screen. And it's almost like these same stories of hardship and these very unique stories of hardship are constantly pinned on communities. And I wonder, cause you know, Casey, you're a storyteller, we're on the call with two artists. When folks are able to create their own stories, define their own selves and express that with the world, will these narratives shift on how we view each other and how we interact?
1: Right. And there's the hardship, you know, we can't, we're not going to say that there isn't a hardship because obviously there is. And that's not the fullness of someone's human being, like by by any measure.
2: I, I remember um, Questlove actually said something um, that I thought was really, uh, really pertinent to this kind of thing. And so much so that literally in the middle of this interview on the daily show, I literally went straight to my Facebook and was like, okay, I need to talk about this. Um, he said something to the effect that I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have the greatest memory, but he said something about to truly appreciate each to truly appreciate the black experience. You need to see black joy. You need to, and, and, that, and that goes and that's 100 percent true to, to all marginalized communities that are not understood. You, you need to you know, you need to see um, to in order to see the wholeness of a person and to truly appreciate them. You need to see them in not just in pain. You need to see them in the fullness of the different experiences people have. That's when you start to see them as equals and see them and to be invested into their, because if it's just trauma, if it's just constant displays of trauma and difficulties, you, uh, you miss out on a lot. And I almost feel like, um, you know, I, obviously I can't speak to being black, you know, but, um, but when you talk about, uh, you know, for for trans for me and stuff, like, there's been so many challenges from it, but like the amount of joy uh, of being who I am, and and and, and the, as scary as it is that being vulnerable and that ask answer, asking myself questions about who I am and honestly answering it rather than answering it in what society expects of me. Um, th- those communities, those communities that accept you for who you are, those little pockets of heaven make everything else worth it. So it's like you know there is joy in our lives you know it's not like we're constantly sad and constantly depressed and constantly having difficulties there is joy and i wish there was more of that displayed in media because i think that's the kind of thing uh that makes a world of difference you know when there's a sitcom character who happens to be something happens to be let's say lgbt but that's not his their defining character trait when 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 it's constantly not constantly being talked about, that's when a person goes, "Oh wow, it doesn't make a difference about who they are. I like that character. I would like a person with those traits." Oh, wait a minute! If the person could be like that and also be LGBT, or person could be like that and also be black, or also be whatever, um, that's when you start to realize, "Oh yeah, I wouldn't mind having a friend like that. Doesn't really make a difference. No, it doesn't. It's." Uh, To be seen as, to have our defining traits be something other than our identity helps other people accept that we could be those things.
1: Disability activists have been so key in, you know, I I don't, Sarah, you probably even know who this is, but I think there's a disability activist who said, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Certainly that is a, you know, a common yeah. you know organizing principle which is you know like if you're not in the writer's room um, if you're not at the table and the policy is being made i mean really like just fierce demands for inclusion protection
2: that's one of the biggest issues with autism speaks everyone you know talks about how uh that entire group is supposed to be about autistic people and about the struggles they face and helping them and stuff but it's actually just a bunch of uh, people who don't have those experiences deciding what they believe help is needed and what they believe the issues are and what they believe is worthwhile putting on the agenda. And to be honest, that that mindset damages people because not all of us necessarily see autism as uh, the way the way people who don't have autism might see it or the way people who who you know. Uh, we don't necessarily want to not be, we don't want to be less autistic. We want to be ourselves. And when it's put in such a way where it's like, how can we help autistic people fit this binary, this, this traditional expectation of what a person is? Uh, it erases who we are. To say that autism is inherently a bad thing and inherently wrong about us, it, it's kind of like, it's it's not that different from the X-Men, if you really think about it, you know, the comics. X-Men, it's like, yeah, maybe we want the power. Maybe we want to keep our powers, so to speak. Maybe we're proud of who we are. Maybe we don't want to. It's not about being normal. It's about creating a world that allows different kinds of divergence, that allows different kinds of weird and different kinds of so it's like, you know, there needs to be whatever the movement is. If it's for a thing, you need a bunch of people that are that thing at the table or else what is the movement even doing?
0: Casey, this is connecting to like Last season, our first couple episodes of allyship, you know, so many allies that call themselves allies or maybe even communities refer to them as an ally can get lost by being too much of a leading force for a community or a cause that's not about them and that's not for them. I think often allies need to learn when to take the back seat and allow the folks that you are advocating for to lead the change and to lead that movement. It's so beautiful to support a community. It's beautiful to be an advocate for a community, but you shouldn't take up so much space. And that's why, that goes for so many things. You shouldn't take up so much space that you are diminishing those voices, those concerns. And it's almost where the movement is no longer about the folks you try to serve. And that can fit a lot of shoes.
1: Yeah, and I want to get back to, Janelle, a question that you brought up, and then we sort of, like, took the conversation elsewhere. You know, in, in talking about, specifically in higher ed, I mean, these institutions are not, they're built with able-bodied people in mind. Um, they're built for, quote-unquote, normal people. Most of these institutions were built um, for men, um, mm-hmm. not even for women. So, and they're, and then... And I and I say that in terms of like physical spaces, but also, you know, beyond that, like the expectations for like who is higher education for? Um, and then we have these institutions that have been around for however long. Um, and what what when we talk about accessibility, it seems to me that we're retrofitting a um, an institution that is not built. I mean, that is built specifically for quote unquote normal, able bodied independent, very independent um, people. And I wonder if there are ways that we can take a more universal design approach that is um, less about like, let me, let me provide individual accommodations for individual students um, on a case-by-case basis, which involves a lot of advocacy and, and a lot of work. And then what are some ways that in the classroom or other ways on campus that we can be more accessible universally that it would benefit everybody like a wide hallway who does not benefit from a wide hallway or having classroom instruction in multiple modes who, who wouldn't benefit from having those kinds of options so anyway sarah I, i'd love to hear you know your thoughts you've been on both sides
3: i think it's again like there's so many disabilities and i think people that's why they have such an individualized approach okay you told me to ask the individuals. So now, you know, what do you need? What's your accommodation? Go to the Disability Resource Center or whatever is available at your school and get documentation and let's see what we can do. But um, I know that, you know, even just the physical arrangement of a room, like um, again, because I have a wheelchair, it's harder to go through like in between rows of desks. So Mm -hmm. I put my, have my students arrange the desks in half circles, you know, so that I can monitor them working better. But I feel like if other professors, you know, took into account the layout of their room and, you know, could you have class outside sometimes and is virtual learning, you know, something that you may use even after the pandemic. Um, I know there's been professors not at Southern but at other universities that um, don't require I don't know how I feel about this, because I'm not sure how I would implement it. But instead of requiring, like, if someone is absent and requiring a reason or a note, they just assume that, you know, you're going to need that time to yourself and they don't require a justification. Of course, of course, if it's chronic, then the student needs to be spoken to and something needs to be worked out to help the student do well in the class. But, you know, or not, not having students always remain in their seats are there ways that you can teach where you're not thrown off if someone needs to get out of their seat or needs to walk out of the classroom um you know can you have i um i don't know how i would do this i don't know if there's equipment there probably is that turns things that are not written in braille into braille i know there are things like that can you do that with a syllabus you know like (laughs) these are things that make me think about and how we said in our class, Casey, that, you know, simple things as relating to transness, like saying your pronouns and asking your students if they have pronouns or nicknames that they wish to be called by, and do they have any accessibility needs, you know? Announcing that I have my own, besides like an accessible desk, like I have this aide; I need her to help me take notes. Does anybody else have accommodations that they need, whether they have a disability or not? There could be a a note-taker for each class so that students who may not be able to focus on taking notes and listening to the professor could, you know, pay attention to the professor more without worrying about that responsibility.
0: Yeah. um, You know, I came to Southern as a first-gen student, and universities can be extremely difficult to navigate especially when you have needs that are different from other students. Universities can be really hard to navigate, especially for people that have never been in these kinds of spaces before, or even have family that are um, from these kinds of spaces that have experiences in how to navigate these systems. And I'm not thinking about just Southern because we do have our own unique resources here at Southern that we do provide for students, but those resources may look different at other universities, at our sister schools, but also universities across the states, across the nation, even more complicated when you look across countries. So when I think about ways in which faculty can support and ensure their classrooms are more accessible is by one, knowing the resources at their own university, right? Like knowing, do they have a disability resource center or some type of equivalent at the university? What do they offer in familiarizing themselves with them? Um, what kind of things do their university library offer? I know ours had a braille machine, does theirs, Are there other departments that has one? Can they advocate to get one, for instance, if they had a student with that need? So one, familiarizing yourself with the resources that your university has and doesn't, right? Maybe even discovering resources your university needs and telling administration and advocating for those needs to be met. I think of as some things that come to my mind first, and also people that are not faculty, right? Like if you're admin working in res life, how accommodating are your buildings? Are you, how old is your infrastructure? Does that need to be updating? Is that a priority? Because all universities do have budget constraints; they do have time limits. So, what are the priorities, um, and how often are we evaluating those when we're talking, you know, staff behind doors? How are we evaluating what we have, what we don't, the experience students have? How are we collecting surveys to hear about their own experiences? You know, are the sidewalks being shoveled correctly during a snowstorm? Are we making sure that's happening? So it could be things that are simple like do the disability buttons work for every door? Do every door have them? Are there elevators? Um, does this one building have just stairs and no elevators? So thinking, I think in multiple different ways about how is a building, how is a classroom, how is the experience accessible? What are the resources we have and don't have? I also think about textbooks, I do. Are textbooks accessible? Can they, you know, is reading accessible? Is the price of the book, are you using open source textbooks? Can you provide alternatives? Do you have textbooks in your office? I've had numerous professors who maybe they keep two or three textbooks they have purchased or received from a publisher. In their office and they will give them out as a case-by-case basis. We have um, textbook loan programs at our university, some that their own department has started. So as a faculty member, there's a lot of ways faculty can give back and make sure their classrooms are accessible, even if they're thinking about unique ways that may not even exist on their own campus.
2: It feels like, you know, maybe, maybe to some people out there, you know, who are not dealing with, you know, these difficulties and these challenges, that a lot of this might sound like it would take hard and a lot of effort and all these, and, you know, a lot of resources and all that. But I think it's crucial to keep in mind, first of all, like you guys said, these, these, these things weren't designed with people that have different experiences in mind. Most of these schools were designed with, you know, white cis men and, you know, those kinds of things, or, you know, or, or, you know, some maybe slightly more, uh, where it might have came in a bit later and might have been more open to different groups, but I don't think any, almost very, very few of these colleges were created with the, with everybody that could go to college right now in mind. Um, and so it's going to, you're not going to be able to put the same amount of resources you put into to everyone else and expect to get the same results because we're not all starting from an equal place. And it may, you know, cost about a bunch of money and a bunch of effort to institute all these kinds of changes. But, essentially if we don't put the effort into trying we're essentially saying that they're saying that the communities that are affected by the thing don't really matter and don't deserve that equal opportunity and when you put it that way when when you when you, when you instead of saying convenient lies to yourself and what makes it easy when you say that if we don't do these kinds of things we are, we are saying essentially that if you don't make it accessible to a blind person then you're saying essentially blind person shouldn't be, have a good experience at your school shouldn't be equal shouldn't be part of the thing and it's it's very difficult to tell yourself that because it hurts if you're going to say no but um because it makes you look at yourself like wow am i a crap person um but it's the truth if you don't make the school accessible for different groups you're essentially saying that they're not that group is not welcome in your school and when you say that that's like like it doesn't feel right. And I think that should almost almost be a motivator. Like I don't wanna to have to look at myself in the mirror and say that this school shouldn't be accessible for these people. So let's do what we can to make it accessible for everybody to make it something that everyone can appreciate and be part of.
1: At the same time, like then we have this whole, I mean, I just keep thinking about this idea of um, productive workers, like that so much of higher ed is like this business, like that we must produce workers be then productive in our economy if less i mean in, in a perfect world college would be just as much if not more about like the public good um about strengthening our communities about um you know truly like education and not just job training
0: U- universities are supposed to be more right they're supposed to be a place of learning a place of growth not just a a class you take in order to achieve the job you want. You know, I've been in classes where there are people 75, 85 who are coming to this university and auditing a course to have more social ties in the community, to learn a new hobby. And I think when we think about accessibility at a university, it's more than just helping one population of people. Accessibility helps everyone. It makes everybody have a better experience. And Mm -hmm. often we don't think about accessibility until we are the ones that need it. People don't often think that, oh, we should have this certain thing or we should really try to work on this problem until they're the one that are having that issue. But when we start putting things in play, and mind you, these issues are systemic and they won't change overnight and they won't change next year. But when Mm -hmm. we're actively working on fixing these issues and making our spaces more accessible, we can all enjoy them better. And I think even folks who don't believe they would benefit from these changes would benefit and would have a happier experience, would meet folks that are coming from different ways of life and that will enrich their university experience. That's one of the huge selling points of, you know, going to a university is meeting and being with folks that you have never met and how they will shape and help your life, how they may mentor you. So I, I don't think folks are always thinking of that actively when they're in the university space, but hopefully if we are hiring folks from diverse backgrounds with diverse experiences, mm-hmm. you know we're providing spaces that allow these experiences to exist in equitable ways, because that's what equity is for, right? Looking at people and saying, you need more than this, and then this and this, um, we can all have better experiences.
1: Well, you know, I'm thinking, Sarah has me thinking now about how I'm just going to tell on myself because a lot of times when we go into classrooms, it just happened to me today, um, the tables are moved. They're in a different mm-hmm. position and, and mm-hmm. like the way that the tables were in my classroom today was fine for my first class because it's not very full. But then in the second class, the way it is, is like it wouldn't, didn't work for everybody. So we had to move all the tables and I'm always opening the blinds because it's sunny out and it's February so it's like sunlight. Um, and I, I'm I'm just noticing how I really hesitate to ask for help. I tend to, if I can, I move all the tables by myself, um, open the blinds, etc. I feel, I almost feel bad asking for help, and then now I'm like interrogating, like, where does that come from? Why do I feel like I can't? When ask? I
3: was on campus, I would, you know, on the first day of class, I asked the person that's working with me to do it, because I don't know anyone and then eventually maybe one of the days I'll use my wheelchair to plow a chair out of plow a regular desk out of the way and then when a student sees me plowing a desk they're usually like okay let me help you and then they but doing it every day like changing the desk setup every day they usually get used to the routine and usually there's always a couple students who jump in after I've been modeling it and they're like hey let me move the desk for you. So that you're all set let me grab this book for you so my students have been really great about catching on and in some ways i haven't had to ask them as as overtly as someone might normally have to do
1: (laughs) well but the the thing about that is that i actually think that what that act is like you're creating an interdependent community in which your students are taking care of, of not just you but each other there's a collective sense versus the situation i'm talking about where i'm like i got i have to do all the things you know and then students then are there to be you know to i'm taking care of things for them as opposed to we are and of course we're we're co-creating this learning environment together but your students are doing that it's not just a metaphor you know for for what you're doing in class but that would create a different kind of community in the classroom I,
2: i think there's um I think there's something to be said for um, that. um, That asking for help is always kind of an awkward experience. It's always kind of uncomfortable at at first, like because you always want to, you always don't want to depend on anybody. You always want to do your own thing. But when you are disabled, you you eventually come to the realization that in certain ways you're going to need help, and you start to more get used to the experience. It's almost like building a callus, and you start to go okay. I'm not going to be able to drive in 10 years, just like I'm not going to be able to drive today. So I got to get comfortable with the idea of if, if somebody wants me to be at a place asking them, you know, is there a way I can get there? You know what I mean? Or, you know, or, or, you know, could I have, and I think if, if you, if you are someone who is mostly capable of doing most things on your own, then that rare occasion where you need help on something all of a sudden feels weird and alien to almost ask for help. Um, and I also think you know, there's there's such a fear of taking space in this world, of of causing people difficulties, and uh, the way people will respond and the way people will treat you because of it. Um, and to 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 have that kind, of, it's hard to build up that confidence where you're like, I'm worth it. It's almost like um, it's almost like it's almost like almost like self confidence. Yeah, you know, I'm worth the challenges and difficulties I present. I'm still worth being around. I'm still worth being friends with or hanging out with or whatever, even if it means that somebody has to go a little bit out of their way. Um, I know that I bring enough to the table that it makes me being there worthwhile. Um, so it's 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 a constant almost dialogue you have to have with yourself and something you kind of have to learn to get comfortable with um, because, you know, everyone needs help sometimes. No one's good at everything, you know, and it's that's okay to need help.
0: So many students go into university not wanting to take up space, especially if they're marginalized and don't look like the majority of the student population. They want to be in the background and their needs put in the background. But I always tell students, you didn't pay to be there. And probably a lot of money. Probably a lot of money to attend these classes, to have access to these Buildings to the staff to the faculty. You paid a lot of money to be there, so taking up space is not something folks should feel bad about. Okay. Um, just just off the simple fact alone that you didn't pay to be in that space, you deserve to be in that space. And while you're there, your mind will get everything you can out that space. I also think about peer to peer support while we're talking about this. Yeah, um, how much can your fellow peers support each other? Not just in disabilities and asking for help, but just being in community, right? Like the power of study groups, the power of tutoring another peer, you know, being in community, eating together, enjoying time together. I think universities is a really interesting space where that occurs.
1: I'm hoping, so Jamil and I have wanted to, for a long time, um, have poets on the podcast. And here we do have two poets I'm not gonna say it's a segment, but maybe it could be a recurring segment in the future. Um, But Sarah and Ora, you both brought poems to share with us today. And I think that would be a beautiful way to end this conversation because art helps us express, you know, the fullness of human experience. It helps us deal with hardship. It helps advocate and really, you know, get things across. So I don't know who would like to go first, but we would love to hear work.
2: Do you have a preference, Sarah? Would you like to go first, or would you like me to go first?
3: It doesn't matter. Oh,
2: if you want to go ahead, I'll go after you. That's fine.
3: Okay, sounds good. Um, so the poem that I'm going to share today has to do with that idea of the I think I mentioned it just in talking, but like the glass ceiling and how when it's. In my experience, when people meet me and I say, "Oh, I'm a professor," they say, "That's great! Look at all you've, you've accomplished, and you know, you've done so much." And it's true; it took a lot to get there, but that that shouldn't be the end of your high expectations or what I'm capable of doing. So, this is a poem that kind of talks about that in a way. <clears throat> it's called. It's titled different lifetimes. My mom always says, upward and onward, keep going. But had I not been adopted and lived in India more than a few months, my cerebral palsy probably would have cost me more than I can imagine. My disability wouldn't get me anywhere. Stuck on street corners, selling pencils, nothing noble, only retribution for a previous life one I couldn't remember, but one karma determined I hadn't lived well. Had I lived in India, I would be of the Sudra caste, the untouchables, scorned for past wrongdoings, often servants. Even as a servant, I'd be sure to disappoint, upward and onward, foreign to sealed ears. Here in Connecticut, a lifetime away, I'm a professor, teaching English, one class on the lowest rung of the academy. Even if I could step up, I'd lose the disability check that keeps all other checks in their place, ensuring they remain small, enough for me to rent low-income housing, enough to keep me fed with a packed fridge, enough to keep me warm and off New Haven Park benches. Those benches have held the homeless, those with only enough for bus fare, I'm grateful to be in from the cold, but my ceiling is made of glass and I see right through it to cement. My raised fist bleeds, stared down in silence. No one speaks of steps for me in my wheelchair to make a grander entrance besides those seen as royalty. Those I've dreamed of standing beside since I was five. Those who knew I could do more, be more, treated as equal in their classrooms not as someone special, only relegated to resource rooms. My professors' voices were loud, echoing my parents. Keep going, they said, even when feelings shattered around me because someone else's raised fist came before mine.
1: Yeah, seriously, drop dropped the virtual mic. (laughs) Yeah,
2: absolutely. All right. Um, this piece is about uh, kind of um, the difficulty of, of finding yourself and uh, t- trying to live your truth, uh, specifically in the LGBT community. But I feel like it, it, it can, if you if you, if you if you think about it a little bit, if you think about it a little metaphoric, it probably could fit a lot of different challenges and uh, things that people you know might deal with and 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 trying to trying to navigate. The space of being out being you know not what everyone expects or whatever all right it's uh, the th- it's called counter quote and it goes <clears throat> look at the hole in your heart imagine if you tried to fill it hell would start would you consider giving in or would it become a battle that's must must win would it become a battle that's must win you say you're intelligent but how much do you really want to know you close your mind with judgment and tell us when we die where we are going to go. We are not broken, we don't need your institution of saving. When fit into your choice lies feels like slaving. So laugh and stare, enjoy the way your played out game is spit out like gum, the scored man, the cannons, and then fire them to the beat of their own drums. All the fighting is such a burden and you can't stop the world from turning. You don't want it to stop anyway, just change course to awaken the brave. The rain will often come to rejoin the sky, But what follows is majestic beauty that embraces the eye, a simple color held in visual prism, a gorgeous sight beyond cynicism. It's hard to find the ones that make you feel complete. We don't need the congregations of self-righteous feet. Your decisions of condemnation are baseless. Your preaching against our right to free love is wasted. We are beginning not to have anywhere for your words, just preferences on how to keep sheep in a herd. There's something meaningful behind a smile, something meaningful enough to break the rank and file. So let's eyes light up. That should be enough to deal with what you find unpleasant. Time for a community of love in the present.
0: Yay, we did it. Yeah, we did the thing. Woo!
1: Well, I think, you know, honestly, uh, you're listening to both of those poems back to back, it so captures in a different way, I think, that long conversation th- that we just had so much <laughs> about humanity. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I finally got to use the applause button. So, <laughs> yeah, about that. <laughs> And this has been a fantastic conversation with you both. Absolutely. And I thank you for coming here and being open and sharing your thoughts, your experience, and your expertise with us and our audience. So thank you both.
2: Thank you for having me. This has been an incredible experience. Thank you.
1: Yeah, and really, I mean, this is, your perspectives really have me thinking about, you know, Jamil and I don't have disabilities at the moment, and I think that a lot of times, you know, it's a perspective that we don't necessarily, that we have to actively bring in. And um, this conversation has certainly opened my eyes um, in ways that, like I was just talking about, as simple as noticing, oh, wow, look at, look at how I don't ask for help from students. A you know, challenging what we think of as, as, as normal or what students quote unquote should be able to do and I, I think that it, this, this conversation will be eye-opening for listeners, too. So thank you so much to both of you for being here. Well,
2: um, would now be an okay time to, to mention the things? Sure. Okay. Um, so first of all, the, the, the piece I just shared actually comes from a poetry book I wrote um, called uh, Forever Intertwined um it's full it's it's poetry uh some of it's about you know like world topics like that and some of it's about like nerdy like nerdy things i'm into or whatever it is it covers a lot of things there's 30 poems in it so um so you know i'm particularly proud to have that book out and uh yeah yeah i have physical copies up. so you know i'm happy to is there yeah
0: happy
2: way for for listeners to get
1: a copy yeah
2: how do they read oh yeah absolutely um yeah i would need to uh maybe i could give my email or something like that so people can can uh see yeah uh i do have i do have physical copies and there is we'll have to figure out how, how, what way to do it but there definitely is a way if there's interest um as well as something that will be a bit easier for people to access you know without contacting me um i also have uh two eps out um mm-hmm. one uh for the band called the elusive men um and the uh and the EP is called Suffer in Full today, Rebuild tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's my main project, you might say, uh, musically. And then I also have a side project called Rakusen Sigil, and the and the EP is called A Game of Martyrs and Parasites. Um, and they're both uh, I am I am the singer and lyricist of both projects. Um, so I'm particularly proud that you know people can check those out if they want and and see uh yeah yeah and just you know
1: if they're interested yeah we can put a link in the show notes huh we can put a link in the show notes absolutely yeah yeah. i'd be happy to
2: uh just let me know i'd be more than happy to do but yeah just you know yeah people want to people are interested and want to check it out i mean by all means i'm happy to happy if you know to, to to talk to them you know and see that see about that um but ultimately i'm just you know thank you so much for having me i was happy to i'm happy to be here you know it was a great time (laughs)
1: <laughs> Wonderful. And Sarah, do you have any, are there ways that folks, if they're interested in your work? I think you, that
3: not at the moment as much. I wish that I did, but actually, like we've talked about today and wanting to not, you know, being, being the fact that I reserve, receive services from the state and things like that. I've always been careful about putting out my work mm. in in the sense of like, I don't want people that to making too much money thinking I'm making too much money off of poetry, which you really don't. But right. That shows the kind of like fear that the system instills in you. So wow. now, yeah. Now, because I'm working on my first poetry collection, I want to start a website with my work. So if that is up and running in a you know soon, then I will share the link.
1: Wonderful, and you know oh. when that book comes out, we'll invite you back on the podcast.
3: That'd be
0: awesome. <laughs> Rock on. Are you still listening?
1: Is it are we still recording?
0: Might as well.
1: <laughs> oh, here that was a great conversation, Jamil. That was great. It, it
0: was. It was. Well since they're still here, you might as well go over to our social media. Follow, like.
1: Yeah, you can find us. Send us messages. Talk to us. Um, At Real Talk Higher Ed on Facebook, on Instagram. And of course, if you're newer to the podcast, we've got so many, well, not so many. We have dozens of episodes on all kinds of topics. So if you like today's conversation, you know there's something else in there for you.
0: Well, all right. We'll see you next time.